1: Hi, you're listening to New Books in History, a channel from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today I'll be speaking with Alexander Zevin about his new book, Liberalism at Large, The World According to the Economist. The Economist is a curious publication. It always takes a point of view, as opposed to the all the news that's fit to print approach. It maintains a uniform voice, as editors and writers are typically handpicked from the same elite British universities and rarely are there author bylines. And it has lasted a long time, originating back in London's free trade debates of the 1840s. It then actively participated in debates over imperialism, global war, decolonization, and globalization. To this day, it is one of the most widely read magazines around the world. For all of these reasons, The Economist also provides the perfect window onto the history of liberalism, This is exactly what Alexander Zevin does in his book. By examining The Economist, Zevin helps us see what he calls really existing liberalism. That is, a liberalism that rooted for empire, embraced finance, and has always held an ambivalence towards democracy. This is a book that we will be talking about for a long time. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Alexander Zevin about his new book, *Liberalism at Large: The World According to the Economist*. Thanks for being on the show, Alexander. Thanks for having me. Yeah, your book was a ton of fun to read, and uh, I'm really glad that we're getting a chance to talk today. Um, but just to begin our conversation, what pulled you down the route of becoming a historian?
2: Uh, that's a, that's a that's a that's a tough question to start with. I uh, I've always been interested in in the past. I've, I've I think when I was younger, the primary way that I, that the past that, that i that I enjoyed reading about the past was through novels actually mm. uh, and uh when I was at Brown as an undergraduate, I really loved um my literature classes but um I actually ended up for strange reasons becoming a history major um sort of through through that study of uh of literature uh and I remember reading. Um, Benjamin's arcades project, and being, especially as a as a young person, fascinated by the way that he had collected these fragments of experience of, of of reading, of being in the archives, of walking through the the, the arcades, and of trying to extrapolate something about Paris as the capital of the nineteenth century, capital of modernity. Through that, um, I also took courses with um, a professor named Mary Gluck, uh, who, who who did a series of classes on. Um, uh, on, on modernity, uh, and used all kinds of um, not just literature, but also art and aesthetics uh, to to to, um, to 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 talk about the past. And uh, I was particularly fascinated by the situationist. I was basically very romantic, revolutionary, and <laughs> um, uh, was uh, uh, kind of gradually moved from from literature to history, uh, and uh, uh, and then and then became a major, graduated with a history degree. In, in, in uh, at Brown.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so the route was paved by Benjamin, Guy Debord, um, the, the rest of the Situationists.
2: Yeah, and from there into Western Marxism, uh, I, I also took, again, a slightly unconventional maybe way in, into that because I also took courses in modern culture and media with a guy named Philip Rosen, who was a great teacher. Uh, and we read some of the classic works of Western Marxism. And so I sort of moved from a kind of emphasis on culture. To political economy, uh, and in a way, I think that was good preparation for for, for for the book that I ended up writing many many years later, uh, because the Economist is a weekly publication that touches on almost every facet of 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 of, of experience, um, hmm. uh, not always from a particularly artistic point of view, uh, rather a utilitarian one. But I think that it um, allowed me to to uncover and to think about economics in a way that that maybe um, wouldn't have been the case if I hadn't had that slightly more eclectic uh, set of interests when I was younger.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and so as soon as I heard about your book, I just kind of said to myself, like, why hasn't anyone written this before? Um, the, the Economist just seems like um, just such a, an obvious candidate for a history of liberalism. Um, and you've already kind of mentioned um, some of your your reasons for getting into it, but... What struck you about The Economist um, that, um, you know, that, that just made you want to write a book about it?
2: Well, I began uh, writing the book uh, as an article. It was just a short article for Le Monde Diplomatique, and I was living in Paris at the time, and I was going to actually be working on a project on 1968 and the history of ideas to do with student and, student and workers um, in, in that period. Uh, and so this took me away from that. But I uh, ended up becoming more and more fascinated by it, in part because I realized that far from being the history of of, of of a publication or a traditional publishing history, I didn't want to write a sort of standard history of a magazine, which I think can often be about as interesting as a dutiful Hollywood biopic, uh, uh, you know, The Rise, The Fall and The Rise or, or, or Internal Office Politics. Um, not that that's uninteresting, but I realized that the editors, many of them are not very well known, but published prolifically uh, who had, you know, large archives that I could access and read. Uh, These people were often, though not well known, uh, deeply involved in formulating policy um, at the level of the state. Uh, So in Britain, uh, uh, at the Treasury, the first editor becomes uh, a a minister of state, a very powerful one, a secretary uh, of the Treasury, He's writing minutes and notes on what the British government should do in Ireland. Uh, very, very little, as it turns out, uh, and uh, uh, is and ends up being sent to India as the very first Indian Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, uh, he's also a political economist who writes uh, theoretical treatises. Hayek, uh, I found some reviews where Hayek is looking Hayek, who was a was a student of, of the history of political economy um, to a much greater extent, actually than than. Maybe Keynes uh, was really fascinated by James Wilson, um, and uh, uh, there, I think there's actually a lot to say about to say about that. I, I, I don't really in the book, but it, it would make a good article. Anyway, I realized that that that, that there was a huge story to tell uh, about not just this magazine, as interesting as that is, but also about the way that this magazine has played an important role via its editors and also its readers in shaping uh, the modern world through this dominant ideology of liberalism. Um, and I, am careful to, to make, make clear in the book that I don't consider the economist to be the purest or the only expression of liberalism, but the dominant form. And that's kind of my attempt to, um, intervene in a historiographical debate and in a debate that has sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, uh um, Really uh, uh, been a been a been a central one for political theorists uh, about what liberalism is and, and our ability to define it. So I think that's a, a long-winded way of beginning to answer your question as to to uh, why it is that this uh, this uh, this project grew and grew and grew and seemed much more fascinating the more I uh, the more I, I looked into it.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I, th- I think that, um, like, you know, what your book r- really reveals is that um, the Economist is both sort of a witness to to world history, um, you know, from uh, you know the the eighteen forties into um, the present, but then uh, repeatedly they exercise uh, an, an incredible amount of influence for a magazine. So, before we get into the um the the angle of the book, which is about liberalism, I I would love to know more about the research that went into it. So you know, it, <laughs> reading your book, it's very clear that you spent a lot of time just reading back issues. Um, but uh, you know, from the footnotes, it's also clear that you um, visited uh, several archives. And so I'm I'm just curious what. Um, sort of the archival experience was like? Um, and what like was there a particular archive um, or like set of documents that really transformed your thinking?
2: Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, there were some great discoveries that I made in the archives um, that pushed the research forward. One problem, one constraint um, that I initially faced was that the economists' archives were... Um, destroyed, largely destroyed in the Blitz during the Second World War um, uh, along with much of their offices, uh, their, their offices in London. So um, there wasn't a lot of material. What material uh, was left was difficult to access. I wasn't able to get anyone at The Economist uh, to, to, to allow me to see those documents. The author that The Economist hired in, uh, uh, to, to publish a book about their history in 1993 for the sesquicentennial, uh, a woman named Ruth Dudley Edwards. Um, had sort of mm, collected what there was, and sort of I, I had the impression it was in a bunch of box the boxes that were molding somewhere in the economist office towers in St. James in London. and London at any rate, towards the end of my research they they did actually uh, they, they, the, art, the collection what what, what what there is of it is is, has, is being archived at uh, at Oxford now and anyway, that wasn't the case when I began my research, so I had to be be more uh, inventive. Uh, in finding my my, uh, my my material, and the way that I went about it was through individual editors. So after the uh, turn of the twentieth century or around that time, uh, economist editors are quite consistently, though not exclusively, drawn from the universe of Oxbridge, and um, many of them left papers with the libraries uh, that they that the, of their colleges. So Francis Hurst, the editor. From 1907 to to 1916, has a, a large collection of papers uh, at uh, at the Bodleian. Uh, 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 he went to Wadham, and uh, he uh, you know those 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 papers were you know have had been looked at by a few scholars, but not not many. Um, so I you know so I, I found a lot of fascinating material there. He was. He was someone, as the editor of the Economist, who was in touch with you know almost every important uh, member of the of the liberal government, uh, the government that came to you know to that won the won a landslide election in Britain in one thousand, nine hundred and six. So you know letters to At- Herbert Henry Asquith or to the Attorney General John Simon or um, you know I found some some very interesting uh, exchanges between him and J. A. Hobson, uh, uh, the theorist of imperialism, and also a, a, a new liberal who. who Later, um, desert the Liberal Party for the for the Labor Party. So um, you know there were things like that. On the other hand, I would also find um, letters that James Wilson sent to William Gladstone. One thing that was very interesting that the uh, original history of the Economist underplayed was that James Wilson is one of the founding investors, uh, the kind of creators of the stand, of Standard Chartered Bank, which is today one of the largest banks in Asia. Uh, and in, uh, uh, in in the early eighteen fifties, he. Uh, was lobbying very hard um, against the wishes of the East India Company to get a charter so that he, in part, could profit off the opium that was flowing between India and China and also, uh, you know, uh, off of the general increase in trade in the region. Uh, And, you know, so I tracked down that the sort of original, you know, um, uh, 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 investor list at the London Municipal Archives. So, it, you know, it was a matter of going to some, a lot of different, disparate archives. Some were the personal archives that belonged to the editors at, at Oxford. Some were uh, company archives. So, because Wilson was an investor in Standard Chartered, that collection was at the London Municipal Archives. In, in other cases, um, I, I, I had to go as far afield as Stanford to the Hoover Institute, um, and I don't know if you've ever had any reason to go there. It's a kind of fascinating and even a little bit of a creepy uh, place. Um, uh, you know this kind of this institutional, this kind of right wing institution that houses a lot of left wing uh, 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 material. Um, and uh, at any rate, some of the uh, editors, uh, again not very well known in the fifties and sixties, nineteen fifties and sixties. Now, of course, the book you know spans over two centuries of history. Um, these editors, a particular two fellows named Brian Crozier uh, and uh, Robert Moss who had uh, a lot of shadowy connections to intelligence, Western intelligence agencies, and who were massive opponents of the of, of detente during the Cold War. Going to those archives at the Hoover Institute was also fascinating because there too, although sort of not well-known and maybe not major players, um, uh, 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 were exchanging letters with Nixon, uh, disgruntled about the you know the, the overreach of investigative journalists like Seymour Hersh or of the Church Commission, who you know had overstepped the bounds of of what you know what democratic uh, accountability should look like when it came to the intelligence community. So just you know, kind of the more I looked, the more I pushed, the more I found these these really fascinating documents, and that added to the the base of the research, which, as you say, was just reading far, far, far too many economist leaders Mm -hmm. uh uh and i'd like to think i hold the world record for for uh for you know number of (laughs) economists we
1: we should get this verified
2: uh yeah no i don't want to i'm just putting it out there if there's uh, someone who wants to look into the matter uh uh, it's a dubious distinction Uh,
1: yeah Uh, i mean if if someone has you beat that person has just got to be a freak Uh, (laughs) yeah yeah like
2: like, let let them come forward you know through the transmission of this book this podcast and uh, contact me dms are open
1: exactly (laughs) um so uh just getting into the book now um as as you've already mentioned um the economist uh you know according to you is Um, the dominant stream of liberalism. Um, And so, yes, it's not like the only or purist, but it's uh, it's the dominant. Um, And this stream of liberalism is very different from other sort of um, tellings of the history of liberalism, um, especially those that are written by liberals. Um, And so can you just like briefly walk our listeners through um sort of uh, liberalism's autobiography
2: right, so I think the standard definition, and it 's one that I have a lot of problems with, is a loose body of thought cohering around concepts of individual freedom or liberty uh, and usually those uh, those accounts uh, of of liberalism uh, begin uh, either in the eighteenth century. Uh, With, I'm sorry, other than the 17th century with John Locke uh, at Life, Liberty and Property, uh, conceiving of John Locke as the first liberal, uh, or with Adam Smith in the 18th century political economist and moral philosopher uh, and his liberal system of political economy based around ideas of free trade. I think that both of those definitions are are inadequate uh, and lead to a quite misleading picture of what liberalism has actually meant, both in theory and in practice. So one of the um, ideas behind this book was to, uh, uh, to use The Economist to give a much more grounded and contextualist definition of liberalism that acknowledges the ways that it changes over time, but that also um, points to the consistencies uh, uh, between early 19th century notions of liberalism and, uh, uh, liberalism in our, in our own day. So it, so it both pushes it back, back against a kind of, um, a, a conceptual looseness, uh, that, um, uh, as well as a, as an anachronistic set of definitions of liberalism, but it also pushes back against those who would say, well, liberalism can't really be defined. That's a fool's errand. Um, you know, uh, 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 it means too many things uh, to, really, to really try and um, take hold of. So I do, I, I, I do that in part in the introduction by carefully laying out the, um, the uh, moment of the emergence of, 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 of liberals and of liberalism um, in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars, first in Spain uh, at the Cortes of Cadiz, migrating to France in the aftermath of the Bourbon Restoration, in both cases, the definition is primarily political. Liberals define themselves as uh, opponents of, um, on the one hand, the Ancien Régime, uh, an autocratic government, uh, and on the other hand, uh, against the kind of mass popular mobilizations, in the case of France, of the, of the sans-culottes and of the Jacobins. Uh, and they usually stand for something like responsible government, basic civil liberties, Uh, and uh, uh, um, some limited form of franchise. The term then migrates to Britain, um, where I argue uh, there is a unique synthesis that takes place between those continental political ideas of of what liberals uh, stand for and uh, the economic liberalism uh, to do with maxims of free trade, uh, internal and external, property rights, low taxes, uh, in versions of limited government. Um, so one of the reasons I argue that The Economist is so valuable to us in trying to come up with a better definition is that it emerges at just this moment when the synthesis between political and economic liberalism is taking place uniquely in Britain. And I can go into, into greater detail about that, but that moment is the, the 1840s. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: yeah, no, uh, The Economist really d- does mark this synthesis. Uh, and um, you, you, you paint such a Um, a a compelling picture of uh, why The Economist, um, you know, is like a more appropriate um, subject or object of analysis um, uh, if you're interested in the history of liberalism. Um, I mean, before we get into that particular moment, um, I I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the three unanswered questions um, uh, that, um, uh, that, that liberals have. Um, because this is th- these questions are sort of the the, the, the grand themes um, uh, you know um, with which you organize your book, um, and so that's um, you know how liberals should respond to the rise of democracy, how they should respond to um, the expansion of empire, and how they should respond to the ascendancy of finance. Um, can you just elaborate on, on these questions? Why? They remain unanswered and um, what The Economist has to say about them.
2: Yeah, great. So in your last question, my answer to that question was about what I don't like about uh, uh, most accounts that we have of liberalism. So if my history is not about sort of uh, the centrality of individual uh, liberty uh, or freedom in the history of liberal thought and practice, uh, then what is it about? I argue that liberals uh, at the, uh, from the 1840s forward confront three questions that the classical doctrine a- a- as it emerged in the in the previous few decades left unanswered, right? And so the economist, in a sense, acts as a kind of practical guide confronting these challenges as they arise in a, in a, in a kind of world historical sense. The first is the rise of demands for mass democracy on the part of the working class. Uh, uh, you know in britain felt acutely uh the think about the early liberals is that they they wanted responsible government but the question was responsible to who right liberals are not democrats
1: mm-hmm.
2: right by and large and so the issue of who gets to vote right on what terms is is something that liberals will grapple with all the way up to the present and in, in, in a sense i think the 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 foregrounding of democracy, the issue of democracy, the fact that liberalism and our, and democracy are not synonymous, but actually contradictory uh, in the eyes of many liberals, that is aligned through to the present and helps us understand why it is that we live in a moment where liberalism and democracy, the very notion of liberal democracy, or the idea that we live in liberal democracies and that this is a kind of stable value or set of values that go together, it, it shows why that 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 might not be the case, and it helps us understand that. So. That's the first point. What do they have to say about the demands of the working class at first organized uh, uh, in, in, in the chartists, but, but, but then extending uh, uh, much further? What do they have to say about that? The second point is about the uh, uh, spread of empires. So uh, what do liberals have to say about this in particular in Britain, but not, not, not exclusively? Can the liberal state also be an imperial state? Are liberals opposed to empire as a form of aristocratic, monopolistic, mercantilist uh, 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 vestiges of the past, or can li- can empires themselves be liberal? Are empires, in fact, central to the spread of free trade rather than uh, rather than the opposite of free trade, as you know, uh, 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 as uh, Adam Smith argued, right? Again, not doesn't figure in the classical doctrine, but is absolutely central to the practice of liberal politics and liberal thought during the subsequent two centuries. The third point is the rise of high finance. Uh, Here in particular, The Economist allows us uh, 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 to understand the political ramifications and worldview of a magazine based in the city of London, which is about to send more capital abroad than any other country ever has in the history of the world and uh the kinds of politics that go along with that so for from 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 my perspective the the economist allows us to understand the kind of politics the corollary of that that kind of emphasis on foreign investment on the part of the city of london um and and to understand you know what does this is a massive transformation in the conditions of, of, of of economic life around the world. What does that, what is the, what, what, what what do liberals have to say about that? And again, this doesn't really figure in the core doctrine insofar as people like Smith or Ricardo, uh, um, um, and others who are thinking about the relationship between agriculture and industry, uh, um, and of labor, you know, what, what about, what about forms of, what about, what about speculation, right? What, What about, what about, what about, um, things that are not productive of value in the in the classical conception of liberalism are are these legitimate forms of economic activity as well and anyway the economist sorry to ramble but the economist allows us to 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 try and answer that question too so democracy finance empire those are the kind of the grand themes that hold up the book Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and we'll be um sort of um dipping back into each of those things as we go on um but yeah, just to uh, sort of you know get us started with uh, the history of the Economist, um, uh, can, can you share with listeners uh, you know who founded the Economist and what his motivations were? Uh, yeah, so the Economist was founded by a
2: guy named James Wilson, uh, and he was the uh, he was a hat manufacturer. He was the son of of, of, a, of a textile manufacturer, so he's quite well to do actually. He was a you know, um, uh, came from a good family, uh, uh, from Howick in Scotland, and he sets up a, a, a business outside of London, uh, but he very quickly uh, uh, gets involved in the anti-Corn Law League, uh, and he begins to write treatises of political economy. And one of the reasons that he becomes such an important um, kind of member of that Corn Law League is that he furnishes it with a, with, a, with a very effective argument. You know, as as your listeners may or may not know, the Anti Corn Law League arises as as a really important uh, uh, kind of middle class social movement designed to eliminate tariffs on grain, which are seen as inhibiting British economic growth and to be unfairly benefiting the land owning aristocratic class at the expense of the middle classes and the in in, in industrial uh, the rising industrial class, right? So his argument is that. You know, far from wishing to attack or, or diminish the importance of the landowning class, the abolition of the corn laws will see all classes benefit. So this is a kind of natural harmony theory of, of economics in which wages will rise, uh, industrial output will rise, uh, and so will the rent from land. Uh, and um, Cobden, Richard Cobden and John Bright, two of the most famous orators and thinkers, uh, themselves manufacturers, to be part of the anti-corn law league, take Wilson up because they see this as an, an incredibly effective piece of rhetoric. And it's not always clear to me that Bright and Cobden really accept it. They have a much more conflictual account of, 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 uh, of economics um, that accepts that different classes have different interests and that the landlord class will have to be basically defeated. But they see it as a very effective tool, and, and and it's important, I think, to understanding the the way that the economist conceives of political economy. This this initial argument that Wilson makes carries over into the magazine. At any rate, he's a he's a manufacturer. He becomes a political economist. He founds this magazine. Uh, he wants the Anti Corrupt League to help him uh, to distribute it, but he also is very eager to reach what he calls the landed and moneyed interests, and indeed finds a lot of support among the kind of Whig grandees uh, who um, uh, sit in uh, Parliament. And it's this fusion of, of sort of uh, kind of middle class rabble rousers like Cobden and Bright and his support among uh, these, these, these uh, Whig aristocrats that allows him to launch uh, uh, The Economist and to try to speak to, to both.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it
1: Uh, So initially, um, James Wilson um, held the belief um, or subscribed to the belief that peace and free trade went together. Um, But then within just a couple decades, uh, um, he and um, uh, other editors uh, um, decide to abandon this in favor of imperial violence um, uh, with the aim of expanding trade. Uh, And I just want to share a a really startling quote from The Economist in 1857 in the the middle of the Second Opium War in which um, Britain was coercing China into importing opium. Um, uh, the, The editor wrote, we may regret war but we cannot deny that great advantages have followed in its wake. Um, so why did The Economist latch on to war? And um, like, what should that tell us about liberalism?
2: So one of the discoveries that I made in the book uh, that I was most excited about was the falling out between Wilson and Cobden and Bright, right? The, these two guys, Will, uh, Cobden and Bright, gave The Economist its start you know, they take a bet on Wilson and on this, on, on this, this newspaper that he founds, but by 1854, they have a terrible row, a terrible falling out, because Wilson at that point is a high-ranking member of the government. They are in Parliament, Cobden and bright, but they are deeply critical of the direction of this government. Wilson comes out in favor of the Crimean War. And this is a moment uh, of, of a kind of burst of imperial warfare. There's the Crimean War. There's the suppression of the Indian Mutiny or Rebellion. There's the uh, Second Opium War. All are, are, are being fought in quick succession. And The Economist backs all three. Uh, for Cobden and Bright, this is a betrayal of the basic principles of liberalism, right? In which free trade equals peace and goodwill. That, that That's the idea that... Um, This is not just a national um, project, right? Liberalism, if it spreads, if free trade spreads, will um, uh, 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 lead to to peace and goodwill among men. So why does The Economist uh, take the side of of the government in the Crimean War and then again in the Opium War? Well, in just a very simple way, Wilson becomes a member of the establishment uh, and a a member of the government. And he's ready to use The Economist to, to back the government's line. Very very clearly, um, but I think there's a deeper reason which is that the notion that uh, free trade equals peace and goodwill is is flawed that that there there really isn't the connection there that the early liberals think there there is uh, and uh, w- for Wilson it becomes quite clear that force majeure is going to be necessary to force people to trade freely all right so um, it's perfectly legitimate to, to use the pretext of the Arrow Incident, which is the, the pretext that the British use uh, to, um, to, to bombard Canton uh, 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 in a joint uh, Anglo French expedition. And it's also perfectly legitimate to try and punish Russia for attempting to um, uh, interfere with the Ottoman Empire, not because uh, they have many illusions about the Ottomans, but because. Um, Well, for one, it threatens British um, control over the Mediterranean uh, and and, uh, uh, British interests in the the Near East. But also because uh, uh, very early on, the economist adopts the line that Britain is a threat to liberalism. It is an illiberal power, autocratic, uh, anti-free trade, uh, um, religiously fanatical, uh, and you know, there, there, you can see quite clearly that this discourse that is ever present in, uh, American politics today, um, is there already in the 1850s, uh, uh, the notion that liberalism actually may have to be forced on people at the point of a gun and, uh, and that, I, and, and then really from that moment on, the, the economist never really looks, looks back. It begins to call the notion of peace, of, of free trade, um, uh, leading to peace and 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 goodwill among men, a shallow doctrine.
1: Mm-hmm. Something that your book does really well is just document. It just documents um, the economists' support for war. Uh, And I I could not believe the number of wars that they, um, you know, boosted. Um, And I will say, uh, I actually, you know, I used to um, uh, be um, a very proud subscriber to The Economist um, until the the issue where they called on the United States to um, invade Syria and overthrow um, um, Bashar al-Assad. And um, it was just like this, like, very, um, uh, yeah, like imperialistic, explicit endorsement of violence. And so... that was actually the reason why i dropped my subscription and so seeing sort of like the, the the prehistory to this um you know it was it was still surprising just the number of times that the economist was calling for war even before the wars um, you know had, had started
2: yeah no uh, yeah yeah so that so so you reacted instinctively or based on your political judgment that this was a you know quite an Outrageous thing to, to 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 do to 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 demand another yet another invasion of, of a country in North Africa or Middle East to to uh, to to um, sort of uh, impose uh, a settlement uh, favorable to the Western powers or based on liberal principles. Um, and actually, that is you know there's an historical basis to that that is really rich and actually important. I think for understanding what liberalism has actually meant. Um, and it's it's not. I mean, you know, there's there's a way in which I just assemble the record of the Economist. It's an audit of the Economist's record. But I think by assembling, a, you know, that by making that audit, our conception of what liberalism is has to has to contend with that and to change. And you know, it's quite common to this day to to hear people invoke liberal liberal internationalism as though it had nothing to do with this history of of, of warfare and violence and uh, uh, of imperialism. But of course, it, it's absolutely central. So. How does that change our understanding of liberalism? It Has to change it profoundly, um, you know. So it's not. I mean, I, part of my book is is critical of the Economist, but it's about something bigger than that.
1: Yeah, there are all these uh, elements of liberalism that uh, liberalism has, uh, you know, told us they don't actually belong. They're they're on the outside of um, uh, liberalism or they're peripheral. But I think what your book shows is that they've actually been quite central. Um, and so, just moving on a little bit. Uh, so The Economist becomes a really important magazine um, for the expansion of capitalism in the 19th century. Um, you know, it was the first paper to collect and publish wholesale prices. Uh, and so, you know, it's providing this service, uh, um, this like, almost, almost this like, um, service to financiers. And it also... Began to cover the global cotton beat, and so you had traders really rely on the Economist to know, you know, what was going on in the U.S. Civil War or, um, you know, the development of cotton markets in India or Egypt. Um, and so, can you say something about the, um, like, the political economic role of the Economist um, in the 19th century?
2: Yeah, I think this is one of the most important elements of the paper but it's important not to treat it in isolation. I wanted to connect this, um, this vision of the global economy that the economist actually creates to what liberalism has meant. I I think there's a tendency to treat, you know, political ideas in isolation from economic uh, uh, factors. Um, But I think in the economist, the two mingle, you know, in the same page or in adjacent columns. Right. Um, And, the, the Economist very early on is the most important guide for British investors, but also for global investors, because the paper very early on, even when it has a very small circulation of a few thousand in Britain, begins to be shipped to Buenos Aires or New York or Paris, right, the capitals of, 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 of world commerce, um, and is used by investors to understand the risk and rewards of placing their capital abroad, right? In a world in which capital for the first time is footloose uh, in an unprecedented way where capital flows are, 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 are moving uh, at, at, at speed to uh, you know, open up new mining ventures in Australia or in Southern Africa or to, um, to irrigate and to, um, to push forward the agricultural belts in uh, Argentina or in Russia, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, and the, we could go on um, to build the railways that are going to connect, uh, you know, the, the United States or, 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 or various countries in Latin America um, and, and elsewhere. Um, the Economist plays an absolutely pivotal role in explaining to people what is happening on the ground. In the places to which they are sending their money, so it's really the first paper to do that, and I think that's really fundamental to under you know today we live in a world in which we accept that you know Moody's or Fitch's or Standard and Poor or these other um, credit rating agencies you know get to determine the uh, you know the creditworthiness of nations. The Economist is really the first to evaluate different countries, colonies, municipalities, even. Um, as well as companies um, to, to, to see the world through the prism of creditworthiness, right? And I think it was very interesting to read Marx, um, who long before I came along, uh, saw the importance of The Economist, not just to um, understanding kind of the ups and downs of the trade cycle, because he's reading The Economist in, the, in, in 1848 and after to try and understand why it is that the springtime of the peoples, in Europe has kind of fizzled and that reaction has gained traction everywhere, uh, in Europe. And he sees the sort of, he sees the trade cycle and the upturn in trade as, as being, um, very important to explaining that he's reading the economist order to understand that, but he also sees in the economist what he calls the, uh, point of view or the perspective of the aristocracy of European finance, um, in which kind of public debt, uh, uh, state credit, um, is on the line, you know, and he quotes The Economist in the 18th Brumaire um, as sort of discussing the, you know, the, the uh, political happenings with Louis Napoleon, um, uh, later Napoleon III, uh, uh, is through the prism of the stock market. So I just, so, I mean, I could, I could go on about that, but um, I think that there's a kind of practical element to that. The Economist is read by people who want to understand the risks and rewards of placing their money abroad. But there's also a a kind of profound political dimension to it, a version of liberalism that evaluates states uh, and politics from the point of view of financial stability and investments. And I think that is kind of an underappreciated shift in liberal politics in the 19th century that The Economist brings out absolutely clearly.
1: Um, and so your, your book goes through a lot of history, and uh, unfortunately, we don't have, um, you know, too, too much time uh, left for the, this um, conversation. So we're going to leap over um, a pretty vast swath of time, um, and I, I would like to hear from you what The Economist Um, has to say about the end of empire and so you know in the 19th century it is um, you know supporting these imperial interventions it's 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 supporting the the British takeover of um, Egypt Um, and then you know you get to the age of decolonization in the 1940s and 50s Um, and so what does the economist like how does the economist see decolonization
2: right so um, this was fascinating uh, to, to study in the, again, in the context of a wider literature about liberals and decolonization, right? Liberals, the kind of liberalism that the economist represents is 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 not reconciled to decolonization uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, you know, and there's almost a consensus among the British political class that Britain will continue to exercise imperial dominion abroad. It may do so... Um, in coordination or partnership with the United States on the one hand and Soviet Russia on the other, but it's not going anywhere. And indeed, you know, um, the British cabinet takes the decision not just to build a British nuclear bomb as to make that point perfectly clear, but also to retain the um, their military assets and bases in the Middle East um, and uh this is true all the way up till 1956 and the moment at which that look begins to look uh untenable. Um so it's not the case that liberals simply accept decolonization. And even even after Suez, the whole question of um who and what will come to replace the colonial regimes, whether those colonial regimes are are the French or the Portuguese or, or the British themselves, um is absolutely pivotal if we're de- talking about kind of radical communist or even nationalist movements um, that want to redistribute land, nationalize uh, natural resources, whether those are you know tin mines or copper mines or or oil or gas um, or oil, I should say. Um, you know, the question of whether or not. War should be fought to prevent that outcome or one side should be favored over another is absolutely in play right um, on the other hand if you know like uh if if a country agrees to become a member of the commonwealth to um to agree to um, continue to accept british ownership of the of the assets uh, that i that I just mentioned um, then uh independence may be granted right. Uh, also depends on how close the government is to to, uh, to the Soviet Union or not. So uh, w- what I wanted to show was that decolonization is not only slow, not only resisted, but also that it's dealt with on a case-by-case basis. So Britain fights a number of wars to retain colonial possessions that are long-lasting in Kenya, in Malaya. Um, Britain is deeply involved in the Konfrontasi uh, in Indonesia that ends in uh, the ouster of 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 Suharto and the uh, murder of five hundred thousand uh, uh, suspected communists. Um, uh, so you know, I tried to to use the Economist to talk about the ways that both British and American officials think about, understand those 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 movements, and to to justify those interventions that they end up making uh, in liberal terms. Uh, and I you know, the book deals with with a number of okay so it's not just Malaya, Kenya and Indonesia, but also um, uh, Cyprus uh, uh, interventions in the Caribbean, um, uh, Iran, which is a huge, um, a hugely important episode in 1954 um, that the British and the Americans uh, intelligence services are both deeply involved in. again The Economist plays an important role there. So I'm just kind of I'm, I guess I'm just listing different different episodes that the book talks about. But overall, I think the the picture I, I want to suggest that the picture of a kind of inevitable glide path towards decolonization, or the idea that this dominant version of liberalism is sort of comes to term comes to terms with decolonization very early on, completely wrong.
1: And, and so, one of the transitions that you document in the book is how the Economist sort of reoriented itself um, uh, towards the U.S. Uh, in the decades after the Second World War. And, um, you know, the, the paper was kind of following um, a changing geography within liberalism itself, um, you know, with like Washington kind of overtaking, well, Washington and New York overtaking London as sort of like an imperial um, financial center. And so um, I, I was actually really surprised at how um, peripheral, the U.S. was even until the nineteen fifties. Uh, I mean, you show that the Economist um, finally got a Washington-based reporter in nineteen fifty-three, um, and then even then, the um, you know, like the the American section of the uh, Economist was um, remarkably underfunded, but. Um, you know, the, the editors were beginning to reorient the paper, and so I'm just curious: like, what was driving the editors in the post-war era to put more and more resources um, towards, um, you know, covering the United States, but then also luring more American readers?
2: Yeah, so I think that there's a number of factors that, that explain uh, uh, the importance of the United States to uh, to the Economist. Uh, one is that the Economist has always been. Uh, as I tried to to, to show, um, deeply implicated in uh, the British state. Um, And that, in fact, to create this liberal world, the economists had to be uh, close to the levers of power inside the state apparatus, whether that was at the Treasury or um, in the House of Lords and Parliament or in individual ministries or as representatives and diplomatic envoys abroad. So uh, uh, in the Cold War period in particular, the uh, Economist and its staffers are attempting to negotiate the relationship, the special relationship, if you will. So one way of thinking about the economists in the the post-war period up to the present is as actually one of the clearest instantiations of the special relationship, which is actually a very fraught one. And there's a debate internal to The Economist as to how close the paper should be to American decision makers. Should The Economist and its journalists play a role similar to the one that they had played uh, uh, in the previous century uh, as kind of um, brokers between, you know, on the one hand, the City of London and its readers and the, the state uh, and, and the Liberal Party? Um, should it do something similar in, in, in the U.S. and eventually it does. By the 1980s, Andrew Knight, who really is the one by the early by the late 70s, early early 80s, Andrew Knight, who is the um, uh, who is the one who uh, pushes for a kind of uh, um, polished marketing um, attempt to kind of bring the Economist uh, uh, circulation up in the United States. So the the kind of concerted effort to, to sort of raise the Economist circulation in the U.S. Really dates to the to the to the mid to late seventies under Knight, uh, and uh, 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 he then does as the editor of the Economist, and he's a particularly kind of sociable, clubbable fellow. Uh, uh, you know, becomes close to members of the Reagan administration. You know, has dinner at the White House. Is very close friends with George Shultz. Um, you know, is on the phone with Henry Kissinger when you know it comes time to discuss. SALT treaties, detente, um, China, you know, whatever, whatever it is, and Kissinger later will do a, an ad, kind of chilling um, publicity campaign for The Economist, uh, which I mentioned in the book and is just a humorous interlude. So
1: um, um, just really quickly, when I saw that, I instantly went to YouTube to watch it uh, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's really amazing.
2: <laughs> right. Uh, basically, an airline passenger gets on the flight uh, uh, sits down at his seat in first class, of course, uh, and, uh, you know, is sipping champagne, has his suspenders on, and, you know, thinks he's, you know, about to have a nice little voyage, and all of a sudden, the person that sits down next to him is is Henry Kissinger, and he slumps down in his seat because what in God's name will he talk to Henry Kissinger about if he hasn't read The Economist that week? Uh, so um, that's, that says a lot about how close the economist ends up becoming to American um, officials, particularly uh, those who craft foreign policy. Um, the earlier period, though, that you, you asked me about, this moment of transition um, comes in fits and starts, and it, t- it takes place. Uh, I think it's 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 particularly evident around the time of Suez, where there's this sort of question, and back and forth discussion about um, you know can Britain any longer act alone uh, in pursuing its imperial interests and You know, the, you know, the, the, retired editor, Jeffrey Crowther is quite clear that the Americans must be brought on board. Um, and you know, um, since around that time, you know, most editors of the economist pass some of their apprenticeship, um, in the United States. Whether that's with a Harkness Fellowship or a Commonwealth Fellowship, which again is part of that infrastructure created after the Second World War to um, to burnish the special relationship between Britain and the United States, or as reporters on Wall Street or in California, it's absolutely essential, I think, that any editor show that they understand the United States and have spent some time in the United States. And and I guess what I'm saying in a long-winded way is that that is because the mantle of liberal empire, which is what the Economist has stood for. Um, Passes to the United States, and it, it, it becomes clear that it's the United States that's going to uphold this version of globalization, free trade, safety of capital for uh, and foreign investment uh, abroad, especially in the climate of the Cold War, where there's this communist enemy uh, that threatens all of those things.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah, just reaching um, uh, into the end of your book, um, I was really interested in how. Um, like, you're tracking sort of what liberalism, you know, actually is, you know, you call it actually existing liberalism. Um, But you also, I think, track the changes that liberalism has undergone in the past century and a half. Uh, And so I I was just kind of curious, you know, if The Economist founder, James Wilson, and um, one of the more recent editors or, um, you know, like Andrew Knight, um, for instance, were to meet. Do you think they would uh, like recognize each other as liberals?
2: That's a great way. That's a great way of putting that question. Uh, I think that Wilson would be quite uh, put out um, in part because his version of laissez-faire liberalism was so uncompromising. um, And... After his, his demise in India, um, and the, the, the steering of the paper by Walter Badgett, his son-in-law and successor, The Economist changes a great deal and accepts that the state is going to have to intervene in the market in order to simply to avoid financial crises, um, uh, uh, which become larger and larger um, as the as the the global economy becomes more integrated. Uh, so. I think that he would be a bit put out, um, but I think he'd be a bit put out by almost any editor that he met um, after the 1860s, including by Badgett. So um, would they recognize each other as liberals? I think that they would have uh, understood uh, each other in some respects as, as liberals. And, and I think that's the benefit of the democracy finance empire frame. Wilson would have understood Knight's interest in foreign investment and in the city of London. That would have been completely recognizable to him. Um, He he would have understood Knight's defense of liberal empire. And Knight does defend liberal empire, even against members of his staff who have, at the beginning, at least, some really grave doubts about the wisdom of Thatcherism and of Reaganism and of some of the policies as regards uh, Reagan in, in Israel uh, Thatcher, when it came to to taking on the the trade unions and whether or not that would really kind of um, lead to a kind of even more aggravated form of socialism rather than the hegemonic version of of liberalism of neoliberalism that it became um, so I think when it comes to liberal empire he would recognize knight and then and then when it came to democracy, I think he would be startled to to see that the the that the kind of working class had been enfranchised, but heartened to see the way that even after the advent of, of the suffrage um, on, a, on a on a on a on a popular basis, that the economists had found ways to um, to to try and deal with the problem of um, you know trying to create stable markets, trying to create a, a legal um, and and other ways of protecting property rights, um, even with uh, something like mass democracy, whether that uh, came through the establishment of independent central banks, um, whether it came through the depoliticization of of the of the economic, the kind of making of guardrails, wh- whether it came, uh, whether it was, um, you know, and, and via a number of other of, of other ways. So, so, so if you see what I mean, I, I think on on those levels, he w- he would recognize um, he would recognize something in the liberal project that was common. Um, but but then again, Wilson is what makes Wilson fascinating is that he is this kind of the early crusading, uh, uh, uncompromising, completely pure and ideological version of liberalism that then kind of has to to kind of change and adapt uh, uh, to to all of these uh, important world historical developments afterwards.
1: Mm-hmm. And you wrote a book about. Uh, um, an organization, or a, rather, a, uh, a company that still exists, um, and so um, that means that y- your work is being read by The Economist now. Um, and so, what has been the response from The Economist? Um, yeah, so
2: I, I know that 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 there are a number of uh, journalists at The Economist who've looked at my book. I think some of them have read it. Um, the Economist published a review of the book that was um, quite uh, what's the a bit snide by a guy named uh, Gottlieb at all souls. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, I was surprised at the, the level to which it did not engage with the arguments of my book. It pointed to the portrayal of the economist during the Irish famine or of the economists' positions on war. But in a rather defensive manner, without without sort of disputing that that those positions had been taken, um, but merely pointing out that you know if you were to read my my book, you would be hard pressed to understand why the economist has been such a success, mm-hmm. uh, or um, you maybe be under the illusion that capitalism had you know not been the wonderful success story that it has been lifting billions out of poverty, and you know that that kind of that kind of narrative. So. I found the, the response a bit, the official response, the published kind of review of the book a bit stale, um, uh, uh, if, if you will. Um, but of course, you know, I, 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 I obviously respect the economist and I think it's extremely important. And I try to, um, give the economist credit where I think credit is due. And in part that that is about the, the way that the economist uniquely, uh, uh, does manage to cover the entire world and does, you know, it, it is deeply ideological. It's in the service of ideological ends, but does manage to give important data, information, news reports, analysis about what is happening everywhere. So, or tries to. So I think, you know, I hope that that there is more engagement um, and not just kind of defensive defensiveness. Because on my end, you know, I wrote a spirited critique and challenge of the worldview of The Economist, which, which which seems to me to be the dominant one. Um, and 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 of course, if it is the dominant one, as I claim it is, then it's responsible for a great deal of the of the chaos and instability and uncertainty through which we are living, right? And and um, you know, it would be it would be nice to have a have a have a lively debate. So far, that, that hasn't that hasn't quite happened uh you, you, if you see what I mean and um but but maybe it will um or maybe it won't because uh uh you know uh, the, 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 the the journalists at the economists don't see the need mm-hmm. to i don't, I don't know
1: um, um going off of that a bit uh So you know, you get to the end of the book, you get to the present, and um, you know we have um, a financial crisis. We have um, the rise of um, you know these like new nationalist movements. um, You know nationalism as an organizing principle in international relations. Um, You see um, you know like growing inequality. um, These populist movements that are responding to that inequality. Um, and so it's it's like a um, a discombobulating moment, um, especially for um, for liberals. Um, and so you know you you kind of return to the three unanswered questions um, uh, that you um, began the book with. And you, you say that because liberals haven't really engaged with these questions um, within the the framework of lib- liberalism, um, they don't actually uh, they can't explain. The, like our current predicament, and they also can't see how liberalism has com- contributed to that predicament. Um, can you um, say something about this?
2: Yeah, I think that the, 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 the response of, of The Economist and of other, of other, this is true, of, of kind of mainstream liberalism in the United States as well. The way that, 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 that self-identified liberals have reacted to the rise of Trump, the advent of Brexit, there's been now, and now we're seeing it. I think again with the with the rise of Sanders um, in, the, in the in the U.S. Democratic primaries, um, there's been a good deal of kind of hand wringing, of of, of 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 concern, but not a great deal of self reflection, not a great deal of curiosity. Um, right, I think the populist label is 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 one way that gets telegraphed right? Everything is populist that, that is sort of critical of the status quo. It's a kind of insult. Um, it's a pejorative term. It's, 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 def- you know, it's, it's, I think it's, that is a word that I find, you know, uh, that has been very, very loosely used. You know, I, I said the same about liberalism, but populism is, is, is kind of hurled about, I think to, to, as a, as a, as a way of um, almost fa- not answering the question. So, um, you know, I try to point out that, that the, the, the issues of, 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 of finance in, insofar as debt is, is a huge factor in the rise of some of these movements, whether it's student debt or housing debt, um, uh, uh, um, in terms of democracy in the sense that, you know, in, in most of these cases, we're, we're, what are, we're encountering, uh, there, there's, a, there's a democratic victory that has not gone the way. That, that elites or the establishment or so forth would, would like it to, right? The outcome of the Brexit vote, people were warned, right, by no less an authority than Obama or the head of J.P. Morgan Chase or or, um, or or NATO or the WTO, right, that they shouldn't do this, that this would leave them poorer. It would leave, you know, it would, it would unsettle the fabric of Europe. You know, it would lead to a renewal of a target conflict not seen since the nineteen 19- thirties and thus to another world war. And, you know, this basically is quite hysterical, um, the reactions, denunciations. And so, so I, what I, you know, in a way I, you know, if you, if liberals or the version of liberalism known as neoliberalism, that's, that's something we haven't talked about that I think would be interesting to talk about more, um, the relationship between the two. I mean, that, that, um, you know, the, that, you know, the, 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 the there's an, the, given the dominance of this particular ideology, One would have to look to it and to its history to try and explain how it is that, you know, over three decades after the fall of the Berlin Wall, liberals who continue to control most of these international institutions uh, continue to, uh, 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 you know, um, uh, set policy um, as well as to enjoy um, a kind of dominant position within the mainstream press. How, how it is we can, how it is that we can explain, um, the rise of, of these, of these, uh, of these, of these problems. And I think that that, that too often liberals turn to some form of external or, um, you know, non-imminent critique. And, and in fact, the, the answers are, are kind of, are kind of there, um, if, if one is ready to, 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 look and, you know, uh, uh, and, and so I, I kind of, I do end the book on, on that note by, by suggesting that, you know, far from seeing Trump as a bolt from the blue, it would be far more interesting and probably factually um, accurate to understand him as the outcome of you know uh, the the course of American politics dominated by by by, by version of liberalism, uh, you know, for the last thirty or forty years, if not if not longer.
1: Mm-hmm. Great, and I think that's a, a wonderful place to leave the discussion about the book, um, but can you give a sense to our listeners what you're working on now?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm working on a, a few projects, uh, ones that I hope to complete in a shorter amount of time than it took me to, to do this book. Uh, so I'm working on um, a, a few small pieces to do with the history of liberalism in the United States, and the reason that uh, that term is particularly confused in the context of American history. Uh, I'm also looking to extend some of the work that I did in the book on, on financialization and its relationship to liberalism and to neoliberalism. I feel that the, um, the, the a lot of great work has been done uh, about neoliberalism that's much more deeply historical uh, than has been the case in the past. And um, I reviewed Quinn Slobodian's excellent book in the London Review of Books. And he he has a great way of of of, of thinking about neoliberalism um, historically. Uh, a new book by uh, Jessica White um, uh, called "The Morals of the Market" um, does something similar in um, as regards to human rights and the relationship between between those two things. I think I'd like to think a bit more deeply about about what, in fact, is unique about the neo and neoliberalism and what neoliberals draw from explicitly or implicitly in this earlier tradition that I have examined. And then finally I'm interested in a much larger project, um, that I'm still working to kind of, um, conceptualize, which is a history, an intellectual history of planning, uh, and hmm. ideas, ideas of, of planning from, um, Simon um, and the Fourierists and the overnights all the way up to, up to today. So, you know, I, I felt that I should, do something even bigger and more unwieldy than than working on the economist um, but it, you know uh so those, yeah those are some some thoughts i had
1: great all of those sound really really interesting and i look forward to uh reading them um so alexander thank you again for being on the show thanks so much uh yeah it's been a real pleasure talking about your book um that book is liberalism at large the world according to the economist And you've been listening to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network.